Hi, this is Edwin Crozier from the Franklin Church of Christ in Franklin, Tennessee. I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. The lesson you're about to hear was presented to the Franklin Congregation on January 11, 2009, in preparation for our gospel meeting with Harold Comer to talk to us about congregational growth. I just wanted to take a look at the work that God had done in other churches how his hand with them helped them grow, so that we at the Franklin Church might be encouraged to change the world one individual at a time by teaching them the gospel. This lesson is simply a survey of church growth in the book of Acts. I have to start off with just a small confession. I, uh, I cheated this week. And that is that I wanted to come up with a good lesson that would prepare us for Harold coming next week. He's going to be talking about congregational growth. I wanted to come up with something that I hope would motivate us and spark us and help us all be excited about this. This is, this is not our normal meeting. We haven't put out a bunch of flyers. We haven't given you cards to hand out to people because this, this, this isn't really for the community. This is not for us to try to get folks in so that we can set up studies and hopefully they'll be baptized. And, and we haven't sent any mailers to other churches. I mean, we're happy if you've got friends in other churches, let them know so that they can come and, and participate in this. But this, this meeting is really for us. It's for the Franklin congregation because we're ready to get moving with some growth and start getting out and getting the gospel out and, and, and bringing folks in. Uh, we've had a lot of new families come in over the last five years, but we've had a lot of folks that have moved and left. And so we're, we've kind of been rocking around at the same point, kind of at a, at a, a barrier, if you will, for the congregation. And that's, that's the specific kind of thing that Harold is just really magnificent at dealing with. And that's, that's where his strength lies in helping us with some practical things about overcoming barriers to, to growth in the congregation. And so I am just absolutely and utterly excited about that. Next Saturday night, the elders and I are going to be able to get together with him and, and hear some great things of, about the work, work of elders and evangelists and in the, in the congregational growth. And then Sunday morning, we're going to start off. He's going to be presenting a lesson in our Bible classes. I believe our... Our smaller kids will be meeting in their class at high school and up. We'll be meeting out here for that Bible class. And then in our assembly, he'll be speaking. And then Sunday night, the elders and deacons and I will be getting to meet with them and talk some more kind of in that more private setting. And then Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, we'll be here at 7 o'clock, and he'll be presenting lessons about uh, the congregation growing. But anyway, like I said, I, I was trying to come up with but what would be the, the, the lesson that could really get us pumped up and excited about congregational growth? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized I've actually already preached that lesson here. But it was five years ago. And, and I probably could preach it and you would never know, except for Mark Joseph might tell you, because he, rem- he remembers every single one of my sermons. And I think it's because he puts them on the web. And uh, every, every preacher needs a Mark Joseph that kind of keeps them honest. I, I could probably preach it, and you wouldn't even know. Half of you weren't here when I preached it back in 2003. The half of you that were here, 95% of you, don't remember it, probably. But my conscience was bothering me, so I just had to go ahead and share. But this, I, the reason why I want us to talk about this is because I want us to realize today uh, that we can do this. Not because we can do it. But because God can do it. God's done it before. God continues to do it. God continues to work in His churches. And because of that, people are brought into the family of Christ and congregations grow and His family in general grows. And because of that, heaven grows. And that's what I want to share with you today as we take a look at at how God has grown His church in the past and, and what God can do with us. 
We've got about 140 members of the congregation today, if the board in the back is right. We've got about 124 folks here. We've a lot of sickness. Some people are traveling. I think some people may have stayed in from morning over yesterday's game. We need to talk to them about that. But in any event, we, we're a little bit low this morning, but this is, this is about where we are. And I just want to start with an interesting statement, because a lot of times we look at this and, and think, the world is so big. There's so much going on out there. What possibly could we do? Margaret Mead, who is an anthropologist, and she was by no means a Christian, but she made a great statement. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. We can change the world. We can change our world. We can change what's going on in Middle Tennessee. We can affect folks with whom we come in contact. And the reason I know that is because we can see that it was done in the book of Acts. And what I'd like for us to do this morning is just just survey the book of Acts and look at the hand of God and how God worked through His people who would work with Him and recognize as we look at it that if we work like they did, calling on God to be with us and His hand to be with us, we can change the world. Before we do that, would you bow with me, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we praise your name because you are awesome and powerful. You are the great God who created the world. How majestic is your name. We're amazed that you're mindful of us. We're amazed that, that you're mindful of us and allow us to have dominion in this earth. We're amazed that you're mindful of us and have saved us by your son Jesus. And we are absolutely and utterly humbled by that and so thankful. Father, we thank you for loving us and we praise you because of that. But we're also wonder, Father, why you would allow us to be a part of your plan and getting the message of your Son out to the world. And we're, we're amazed that you've taken thought for us and let us be a part of that. And we pray that you would strengthen us, that we would be motivated, that we would be able and capable, that we would grow in strength and willingness to do all that we can do to spread this message to, to, your, to the lost that are in the world. Help us to realize that one of the greatest reasons is that we can't help others without helping ourselves. And as we teach that message and as we draw others in and, and help them overcome their sins, that, that you'll be helping us do the exact same thing in our lives. Father, we praise your name and we thank you because you've let us be a part of this. Help us to be motivated. We pray that you would be with Harold as he's continuing to prepare for our meeting next week, that he'll present things that will motivate us and benefit us and strengthen us so that your gospel can be carried to Middle Tennessee. Father, we're not worried about big church buildings. We're not worried about big numbers in the pews. We just know that there are more lost people around us, and we want to find them. We'd ask that you'd help us to do that. Through your Son we pray. Amen. Now, before we actually look at the survey of the book of Acts, I want us to kind of do some preliminary information. First of all, we need to recognize that they had the same kinds of people back then as they do today. We kind of have this idea, that, well, it was a lot easier because they didn't have all those denominations back then. But we just need to recognize that they had the exact same kinds of people back then as we do today. Look in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, we see Cornelius. It says that at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, 
gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. There are some people seeking to serve God. There were those people back during the days of the first century, and there are those people today. There are people who are seeking to serve God. They may be doing it in error, as Cornelius was. They may not know what they should be doing, but they're, they're working that way. They're walking in that direction. And they just need us to find them so that we can bring the truth of God's gospel to them so that they'll know how they can be saved and know how they can overcome their sin and know how to serve and honor and glorify God in accord with His will. There really are people, brethren, who are seeking to serve God. We're not the only ones. And we need to get rid of that arrogance and that pride that might have that kind of mindset. There are people that are seeking. We also look in Acts chapter 2 and verse 5. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 5, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. There were people who were devoted to other religions. And and I just want you to think about this. These guys were devoted to their other religion. and, And in fact, one of the tenets of their religion would almost cause them automatically to deny that Jesus could possibly be who he claimed. How tough it must have been as, as they dealt with the Jews. In fact, that, but this was the first group of people that they dealt with the most. Because of the, their concept of monotheism, they couldn't imagine God the Son coming into the earth. And there being Father, Son, and Spirit. They just couldn't imagine that. They were devoted to their religion. Yes, there are people that are devoted to their own religions today. And we sometimes think, well, we can't do anything with them. They're, they're already devout. They're already devoted. There were folks devoted here, and yet the church grew. Also look in Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 16. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. There were people that were pagan and atheists and idol worshippers. There were folks who were absolutely opposed to a religion of God in heaven. And that's exactly what we've got today. There are pagans and atheists, and sometimes we have the idea that, well, when you're dealing with pagans and atheists and all those sinful things that they do and that they like to do, they would never want to become Christians because they wouldn't want to give up all of that. And yet that's exactly the same kind of people that were there in the book of Acts. You see, here's the thing we need to understand. As we go through this survey in the book of Acts, don't say in your mind, oh yeah, well, that's because they had different people back then. No, no, they had the exact same kind of people as we have today. There were some people who were seeking God, but there were also people devoted to their own religion, and there were also people that were pagan and atheistic. And yet the church grew. I want you to notice that during this time, they had the exact same kind of responses as today. If your Bible's still open to Acts chapter 17, just look a few verses down in that same chapter. In Acts chapter 17, beginning at... Oh, i got to get to 17, not 16. In Acts 17, beginning at verse 32. Now, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, 
But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. They have the same three responses that we're going to get today. I think sometimes we have the idea that, oh, back there in the New Testament, it was just, you know, they just went out and taught, and they just had all these people just coming in, and it's not like that today. Well, that's not the way it was then either. They had some people that rejected. They had some people that mocked who said it was silly. They couldn't believe in some Savior that would die, some God that would come into earth. They couldn't buy all this stuff about His kingdom. And so they mocked it and they laughed at the idea of a dying and resurrected Savior. And we've got people today that will mock the Gospel for one reason or another. But they did then too. What did they do? Did they stop? Did they get discouraged? Did they say, oh, why do we keep preaching this? Because there's people mocking and rejecting us? No, they just kept on preaching. And that's what we need to do today. But then there were some that said, We'll hear you again. Boy, we're hearing this, and kind of some of it's okay, but some of it seems a little bit weird. We're just a little skeptical. We've got a lot of skeptical people today. I understand that. We've got a lot of skeptical people because they've seen too many folks who call themselves Christians not living it. We've got a lot of skeptical people because they've seen too many televangelists that claim to be Christians that just use Christianity as a cloak for materialism and greed. We've got a lot of people that are skeptical because they've seen a lot of Christians who claim to be Christians, but their Christianity hasn't been helping them with their sins. So I know there's a lot of skeptical people. But there were skeptical people here then too. What did they do? Did they say, oh, well, it's just, it's all for naught. Everybody's skeptical. Nobody accepts it the first time. I mean, I know we all want those people that we can make that one stellar presentation and they'll get baptized. That's not the way it was all the time in the New Testament. And there was only one Cornelius. Only one Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, You know, these are just a few of the stories, but the majority of the people either mocked or were skeptical. But now there were some who accepted. There were some who believed. And and notice here in this text, it, it actually only names two. I mean, I think there were some more than just those two, it seems to be. But out of the crowds on Mars Hill, only two that are named and, and just a small number. And those were the ones that the Christians focused on. Instead of being discouraged and distracted because of the multitudes who didn't obey, they focused on the few who did. Even in that number we're going to talk about, the, the first day of conversion, 3,000, we think, oh, you know, that's just a huge number. But of the number of Jews who were in the city because of Pentecost, that was just a teeny tiny fraction. I mean, just the tiniest number of people compared to all the folks that would have been in Jerusalem because of the feast that day. So, but those were the ones they focused on. They didn't get discouraged because of the mockers and the skeptics. They became encouraged because of the few who did accept. And that's what we need to do. But even in that few, when we take a look at the book of Acts and how the church grew, just just going through a survey, it's just phenomenal. Acts chapter 1 and verse 15. We're just going to start there. Acts chapter 1 and verse 15. I want you to see where everything was as it began. And then, and we're going to move fast. We're going to move fast. I'm going to have some outlines on the table in the back if you'd like to get a copy of it. And if we run out, we'll, we'll print some more. But we're, we're just going to just quickly run through Acts. And then we're going to make some uh, final conclusions about how it worked. But I just want you to notice where they started. Acts 1.15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was in all about 120. Where did they start? 120. I'm looking at the board right now. It says we got 124. They were about where we were today. 
All right? Now, where did they go? Well, we know. Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added this day about 3,000 souls. And then we move to Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, and it says, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now, did you notice that's the number of men? That's not the number of Christians. That's the number of men. You've got a congregation here that could be, when you add in wives and widows and children, about 10,000 people. Well, they must have been liberal. About 10,000 people could have been more than that. Then we get up to Acts chapter 5 and verse 14. More than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now, you'll notice that's on top of the 10,000 we've already got. Multitudes. This is still a small number in comparison to Jerusalem and its surrounding cities. But multitudes are continually added. Then in verse 16, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Notice now, it's not just it's not just Jerusalem, but it's the surrounding cities around Jerusalem. They've gone out and they brought people in. Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. There's those people devoted to other religion. A great many of the priests became devoted to the faith. But then something tragic happened. Well, seemingly tragic. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, Saul approved of the execution of Stephen, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Seems like a tragedy, but notice verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. There was a dispersion. It's almost like what happened at the Tower of Babel. God had wanted those early people to spread out and populate the earth. They had all gathered and stayed in Babel, and so He had to change their languages and send them off. The folks... We're becoming Christians as everybody. They were just in Jerusalem and some surrounding cities. And so God now takes it in His hands. And He scatters them to men of other languages. But the key here is they went everywhere preaching the Word. And what we're going to see now is that not only did they impact Jerusalem and the surrounding cities, but those very people impacted the world. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now we're moving into Samaria. In verse 12 and 13, when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Here Philip comes into Samaria. So it's not, now it's not just the Jews. We're branching out into those, those half-breeds who, who aren't really Jews but they kind of want to be in. But now they're becoming Christians. And then in Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 26, it goes to the Ethiopian eunuch. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch of the court of, excuse me, a court official of Candace, 
king of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all our treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now that gospel has come to a man from Ethiopia, and he travels on, and we recognize here is the entrance of the church into Africa. And then in verse 40, as Philip is done there, this is Acts 8 and verse 40, Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So we see two more cities. Then in chapter 9 and verse 22, we know that Saul was in Damascus. In verse 23 it says, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Here's a church in Damascus. Here are disciples in another city. Then in verse 32, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There are already saints in Lydda. And then in verse 35, And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now we've got him in Sharon as well. Then in verse 36, Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha. Here we have the church already in Joppa. And then we have a major event take place in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius is converted. We're not going to read all of Acts chapter 10 and 11, but we know that Cornelius, a Gentile, is brought into the family of God. Now we're not just dealing with Jews. We're not just dealing with half-Jews. Now we're dealing with those pagans, those, those atheists out there. Now we're starting to get them. Of course, Cornelius was one of those who was seeking God. That's where it started, but, but this opens the floodgate for all those others as well. In Acts chapter 10, the Gentiles are converted. Then we move into Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, this is Syrian Antioch, by the way, spoke to the Hellenists also, or to the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now we're getting into the Gentile world, Syrian Antioch. Then in Acts 13 and verse 4, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And then in verse 6, When they had arrived, excuse me, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And it goes on and talks about what happens here. And there's conversions on the Isle of Cyprus. And then we look in verse 14. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. So we've got Pisidia and Antioch. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and they taught and, and folks were converted in Pisidia and Antioch as well. Acts chapter 14 and verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number, both of Jews and Greeks, believed. So we have Iconium. And now verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. And we know that, that Paul is going to heal him and there are going to be a great number that are going to be converted. In verse 20 and 21, when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel of that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. And so on this missionary journey, Paul goes out. All these places, churches are started or churches are already there. But what we see is from that, that very small number of 120, all of this is being generated. It all stretches back to that 120. But now, here's something really amazing. In verse 23, when they had appointed elders, this is Acts 14.23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, not only were they establishing churches, not only were they getting the message out, but they were even being able to have leadership in those churches. And so we can see why that was then able to propagate even more going on from there. 
Then Acts chapter 16, we know that he's moved to Philippi. And in verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him. This is talking about the jailer and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. There's believers in Philippi. And then we get into Acts chapter 17 and verse 1. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. In verse 4, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. And so now we've got a church in Thessalonica. In verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. In verse 12, many of them therefore believed, without a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. And so now we've got it in Berea. In verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens. We've already read about the acceptance of folks in Athens. That was part of our kind of introduction to this entire survey. So now we have at the, at the, the center of Greek education in Athens. We've got Christians there. Then in chapter 18, verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because, of Claudius, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave. And then on it goes and talks about the teaching that they did in Corinth. And a church was established there. And then in verse 19, they came to Ephesus. And he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And people are converted in Ephesus. We continue reading. We come to Acts chapter 20, verses 6 and 7. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. And here are Christians already meeting in Troas. Paul doesn't establish this church. It's already there because of the work that's been done, all starting with that 120. Then in chapter 21 and verse 3, when he had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was unloaded its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there seven days. Again, there's already disciples in Tyre. When we had finished in verse 7, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers. There's already brothers in Ptolemaeus. We have to skip a few chapters as we go through the trial of Paul and all that takes place there. And then we find him on his journey that's going to eventually get him to Rome. And notice what he finds on that journey. In Acts chapter 27 and verse 3, the next day we put in at Sidon. Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Now I recognize a little bit of speculation here. But when I hear about Paul's friends at this point in his life, I kind of assume these must be disciples. I know that Paul had other friends, I'm sure. But the friends that Paul needed comfort from were not just any kind of friends. He needed comfort from Christian friends. So I view this as evidence that there were Christians also inside him already. And then we get into Acts chapter 28. And from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day a south wind sprang up and on the second, game, the second day we came to Puteoli and there we found brothers. And we're invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And in verse 15, the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. From Jerusalem to the surrounding environs to Samaria, 
and the folks that Jews would hardly have anything to do with, to the Gentile world, to the seat of Greek philosophy in Athens, and now to the capital of the entire empire. And where did it start? It started with 120 Christians. Acts chapter 17 and verse 6 talks about these people who are turning the world upside down. It's not just about them. This can be us. It can start with us. We can be a force that changes the world. The question is, will we? How did it work? Just, just real quick, I want to talk about three things about how they accomplished all of this. First of all, let's just point out what they didn't do. They didn't run for president or for senate. I'm not saying that Christians can't be involved in politics. We just need to remember that God has never asked us to spread his will through the political means. They didn't take up arms and start threatening to kill people. And so start some holy war. They didn't, they didn't do that. They didn't do any of those worldly, earthly kind of ideas. They stuck with the spiritual. I want you to notice the three things they did. You know, the reality is, they didn't even try to change the world. They set out to change individuals. There wasn't a single one of those people that were thinking, you know what, here we are in Jerusalem and one day we're going to be in Rome and, and here's the plot and here's the plan and we're going to set it up and, and by this time next year we're going to be in the, in the surrounding cities and then by this time in five years we'll be in Samaria and then in ten years we'll be going to Gentiles and you know what, if we play our cards right and do this right, I think in 25 years we'll be in Rome. And whoo, nothing will stop us then. They didn't say that. They didn't really set out to change the world. They set out to change one individual at a time. In Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 24 says that we should put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we're members one of another. Be angry and don't sin. And it goes on and talks about this change in the lives of these people. But this is individual change. They didn't, they didn't set out to make laws against stealing. They didn't set out to make laws against sinning while angry. They didn't set out to make laws about, you know, that, that would govern the world about how to speak. They went out and talked to individuals. And one individual at a time, they impacted the entire world. They turned the world upside down, Acts 17 said. That's what we need to think about. They give up this idea of going to Washington. I mean, you can have your political concerns about who's the governor of Tennessee and who's the president of the United States and the laws that they have, and I'm fine with that. But brothers and sisters, if we want to change the world, we've got to do it by getting the gospel out to another person so it can change their life. That's how God wants us to change the world. They didn't set out to change the world. They set out to change individuals. We need to recognize that they changed those individuals by teaching. In Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 and verse 40. The 3,000 that were added. How did it happen? In verse 40, with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, they were changed by teaching, by instruction, 
by hearing the message. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed Christ to them. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 35, the Ethiopian eunuch was convicted and became a child of God. How did that happen? Philip opened his mouth in Acts 8.35, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. How was it that they were changed? They were changed through teaching. Cornelius, how was he changed? In Acts chapter 11 and verse 14, the angel told him to send for a man named Peter. He'll declare to you a message by which you will be saved. You and all your household. We could go through the whole thing. How are they changed? By the message. By the teaching. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we're not going to change the world by having Super Bowl Sunday. We're not going to change the world by having fairs. We're not going to change the world by having entertainment and recreation. We change the world one individual at a time by teaching them the gospel. God doesn't need our help drawing people to that gospel. He doesn't need our fellowship halls and our gymnasiums. He doesn't need man's ideas for those things. People are changed by teaching. We've got to get that message out if we're going to change individuals. And then the third thing. They realized that they weren't the ones doing the changing. They realized that they were simply the messengers of God's changing message. That's it. They didn't go out with this idea, man, i got to get to Samaria so I can save those Samaritans. Boy, i got to get over to Antioch so I can save those Antiochians. I've got to get God's message there. Because God is the one that does the changing, not me. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In verse 5, Paul says, What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but who gave the growth? God gave the growth. He who plants and he who waters, or excuse me, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. As long as we have the idea that I can come up with a plan, and boy, if, if we come up with this way to do this, we're just going to be spinning our wheels. We might get some more people here, but we're not really going to be getting growth for God's kingdom. It's only when we recognize that it's by the hand of God Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me, through Christ who strengthens me. We can do this through God who strengthens us. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. According to His power at work within us. I want you to think of it as big as you can possibly ask it. God can do it through us. He can find another person here in Middle Tennessee to whom we can teach the gospel and bring them into the family of God. He can do that. And He can do that through us. Acts 11, Antioch had so much success. Acts 11. 
the reason they had success is because the hand of the Lord was with them. Verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This is what we need to understand. We're not not having a meeting with Harold next week to try to learn about the plans of men to grow a church. We're going to cover some very practical things that work, and, and that's true. But we're doing this because we want the hand of the Lord to be with us. Because when the hand of the Lord is with us, a great number will believe and turn to the Lord. We're not doing this so that our pews can be filled. We're doing this so heaven can be filled. We're doing this so we can be saved. Because it's through taking the message to others that we're anchored within it. We can do this. Not because of us. Not because we're great. Not because we have good elders. Not because you guys have the best preacher in Middle Tennessee. That, that was a joke, by the way, for everybody. Thank you. Not because we have some of the most awesome deacons. Now, now that's true. Some of the great Bible class teachers. But because we serve the greatest God. Who's more powerful than anything we can possibly imagine. And who through us can impact Franklin, Spring Hill, Thompson Station, Nashville, Fairview, Antioch, Nolensville, Middle Tennessee. He can do that. The question really is, will we work with him? Or will he have to work with someone else? That's the real question, isn't it? Will we work with him? Or will he have to work with someone else? I certainly hope that lesson was edifying and pumped you up to get the word out so that God's church can grow. But most of all, I hope that God was glorified. If you have any questions about the lesson or any spiritual needs or prayer requests, please feel free to call us at the Franklin Church of Christ at 615-794-2359, or you may contact us through our website, franklinchurchofchrist.com. If you're ever in the Middle Tennessee area, we would love to see you face-to-face. We invite you to any of our classes and assemblies. You can get directions and service times at our website. Again, that's franklinchurchofchrist.com. We look forward to meeting you. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.